Our scripture passage today is from the revelation given to John, chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Before we read this, let us bow our heads in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, we thank you for the word revealed that you have given to us. Father, we are lost without your revelation. We are blind. We are as children, Lord, who know nothing of this world around them without you here to teach us. And so, Father, we thank you. You have given us this word. We thank you. You have given us your revelation. And Father, even these things we cannot understand without your spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds. And so, Father, I pray that spirit be upon us today, Lord, that you teach us and instruct us, Lord, with this word given to us proclaimed and with the indwelling word of your Holy Spirit. Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the revelation given to John, chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how many of you remember Y2K? Probably most of all of us. Well, you know, we're not as young as some crowds are. Uh, some of us weren't even alive during Y2K. But I think most of us remember Y2K, right? The coming of the millennium. 
And we had some pretty great expectations for Y2K. I remember uh, New Year's Eve 1999. It was kind of like this building up party. I was in my, I think about my early 20s at that point, getting into mid-late 20s. So New Year's Eve was a big, important event. It was a big party to have there. And, and, um, and I remember when, when after 1999 struck, we sang Old Lang Syne, and then some of the DJ where we were put on that Prince song, we're going to party like it's 1999. Because 1999 was a big deal. Now, this is when, this was just a warm-up. This was the build-up. The big party was coming at year 2000. The big party was coming for the millennium. Be the biggest party in a thousand years, right? We're all getting ready for it, all expecting it. And, and that wasn't the only expectation we had for Y2K. You remember some people, we, we were worried that the computers were going to crash at Y2K, the Y2K bug, and all the computers were going to go down and throw us all the way back to 1975. And then some people thought the world was going to end. Year 2000, maybe this was it. God was finished up with it. And then some of us actually had these, these big dreams for the year 2000 because when we got to the year 2000, we got to the future. I mean, it sounded so futuristic, the year 2000. I mean, especially compared to 1985 or 1975 or even 1999. When you're in the 19s, that was old and archaic in the past. Now we're getting to 2000s here. This is like the Jetsons age, right? And we were waiting for technology to blossom and to solve all our problems and us to get flying cars and... Yeah, it was going to be pretty good. Well, it was kind of disappointing. Y2K was a bit of a dud, right? There was no crash of the computers. The world didn't end. Here we are sitting at 2021, still no flying cars. We're trying to get some self-driving ones, but we haven't gotten that perfected yet either. And even the, the, the party, the big Y2K millennium party, that was, at least for me, a big dud. Uh, I remember uh, December 31st, 1999, six hours before midnight, I had a 104-degree temperature, and I was in the doctor's office with acute bronchitis. There was no party for me. <laughs> the great party, the millennium, went, came and went, and I was sitting on the couch, watching the countdown, trying to fight off a fever. We had some pretty great expectations for the Y2K, but it kind of fell flat. And, a lot of, and, and unlike a lot of, I guess, uh, human-marketed events, this one really did not live up to its hype. And that is often true with human life, quite a bit. We make expectations, and it's not always that the expectations don't live up to the hype. Sometimes our expectations are just wrong. We just get way off base. We expect things to happen one way, and they happen an entirely different way. A great example of this is the first advent of Christ. The first time Christ came into the world, he was heralded with, with all these prophecies. The, 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 his people, the Jewish people, were waiting for him. This was the Messiah, and they had huge expectations for him. He was going to be a conqueror, a king. That was going to come and he was going to defeat all their enemies, throw off the yoke of Rome, establish the kingdom of Israel once again and all the glory that it once had with King David. Now they did get a king, but they got a very different type of king. They got a king that was humble, that was born in a manger. 
They got a king that rode into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. They got a king that taught the love of God. A king that allowed himself to be killed and a king, though, that did rise again from the dead and triumph. But to many of the people living in that time, their expectations of the Messiah were, were so strict and they were so rigid that they did not allow themselves to recognize the Messiah when he came. And it was nothing, of course, wrong with the Messiah or what he did or even something wrong with the prophecies. It was something wrong with the expectations. And Christ did not meet their expectations, so many were led to reject the Son of God. And that's something that all of our expectations can do. Our expectations can become so powerful that they begin to cloud our judgment. Our expectations can be some so powerful that it prevents us from seeing God working in a way that He's working in our life because He's working in a way that we do not expect. You see, God works in many ways that we don't expect. In fact, you can say that our God is full of surprises. And He surprises us all the time with how He acts and how He works in our life. And so the same, I believe, is going to be true about the return of Christ, about his second advent, when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom here on earth. That's what this, this passage is about today, what we read here from Revelation 19. This is the completion of the kingdom of God. And for, for most of Christ's ministry, he was talking about the kingdom being near, the kingdom being at hand. And we still are in that age where, where the kingdom is coming. It's getting closer. It's at the doorstep. The kingdom is in our hearts, but it's not quite here yet. But today in Revelation 19, we read about when the kingdom arrives. It is the conquest of Christ and the arrival of his kingdom. And if you remember what happened before, Satan was, we, we have this, this build-up to the kingdom of God, the blowing of the trumpets. And then Satan, he's, a vic, he's kicked out of heaven, and he's cast onto earth. And he knows the kingdom of God is arriving. And all that he has set out to do to destroy and deceive and distort creation is about to come to an end. So this last-ditch effort, he raises up with all of his power and all that he's got, raises up this, this antichrist, this beast that is set out to deceive and distort the, and lead the people astray. But this doom to fail, this doom to fail because Satan cannot stop the arrival of the kingdom of God. And today we read of its arrival, a white horse arrives, its rider is faithful and true, and this rider is followed by a heavenly host, and they go to war against the Antichrist. The beast is defeated and cast into a lake of fire and sulfur, and the kingdom of God will be established here on earth in a thousand-year reign of Christ and his elders. That's what we know. The fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the establishment of a thousand-year reign of Christ and his elders. That's what we know because, well, that's what Scripture has told us. But here's where expectations start to creep in. See, there are a lot of ways that we can expect Christ's return. We know he's returning. We know he's coming in glory. We know he's setting up a millennium kingdom. But we don't know exactly how this return is going to look. Uh, most people studying this book have kind of decided that it's not going to happen literally exactly like it happens 
in the story in chapter 19. As in Jesus is not going to actually be riding on a horse. He's not going to have fire coming out of his eyes. And he's not going to have a sword dangling out of his mouth. It gives us this real strange image. You know, the fire in the eyes and the sword out of the mouth. It's not going to look exactly like that. We're not going to see Jesus with his sword hanging out of his mouth. This is symbolic. This is highly symbolic language. The fire we see in his eyes is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the blaze of his glory, of his strength, of his magnificence. And the sword that comes from his mouth is the way he conquers. His weapon is the word. Think back on the ministry of Christ when he needed something done. All he had to do was speak it. That's what happened when God created the earth. He just spoke it into being. When, when Jesus wanted to cast out a demon, he just told the demon to leave. When he wanted someone to raise from the dead, he told them to rise up from the dead. When he wanted a storm to stop, he would tell the storm to be quiet and the storm would quiet. It was his mouth, it was his word that was his weapon. So the question we always face when looking at this in chapter 19 is asking ourselves, is this the literal bodily return of Christ? Or is this more of a symbolic return and the bodily return of Christ happens a little bit later in chapter 21 at the last judgment where a throne comes down from heaven, the dead are raised and everyone gathers at the throne of Christ and is judged. Which one is it? Well, what do you think about that will put you in a position they call a premillennial or postmillennial position. It's about when you think Jesus is going to come back. Is he going to come back in the body before the millennium? That makes you a premillennial. If you think he's going to come back after the millennium, that makes you a postmillennial. So now the, the premillennial, they look at this as, a, as, a, as the physical return of Jesus to earth. That this passage in 19 is Jesus' physical body coming back to earth. He's going to personally lead an army and conquer the Antichrist. And he's personally and in body going to set up a kingdom here. Going to have a throne he's going to sit on. And he's going to personally reign here in the body for a thousand years. And if you interpret that passage this way, then you are officially a pre-millennialist. Might not have even known it, but there you go. Now, a post-millennialist looks at this passage a little bit differently. That this is a symbolic conquest of the church. This is the church reigning and, uh, and, and conquering the enemies of the church over perhaps a long period of time. And it's the church that sets up a millennial reign, a thousand-year reign, when the church is dominant across the world and, and kind of helps govern world events and all that good stuff. And the physical return of Christ doesn't come until the, the, the last judgment, after the millennium. So if you believe that, you are officially a post-millennialist. And just to make things interesting, you can also be an amillennialist. An amillennialist doesn't really believe in a, in a literal thousand-year reign. It believes in an age of the church, that we are actually living now in the symbolic millennium, which is the age of the church. Now, i got to say, everybody who believes their position, the pre, the post, or the amillennial, they all make a good case for it. And they really do. I've, I've read their books, I've heard their arguments, and they really all do make a very good case for where they stand. And unfortunately, there's no way to prove who's right. At least, not yet. The only thing that I can be sure of, or we can be sure of, is 
some or all of this is going to work out in ways that we don't expect. God will surprise us. Now, of course, I have my theory as well. In fact, I take a position that I call a perimillennialist. Now, you can Google that if you want, and I Googled it, and I didn't find any entries. So maybe I just made this up. I don't know, but I'll tell you what a perimillennialist is. So I think we're going to see a return of Jesus both before and after the millennium. Now, hold on, I'm not trying to just reconcile the two positions. I really do believe this. For instance, today, the white horse that we saw is the return of Christ, not in body, but the return of Christ by the outpouring of His Spirit. That's what the mouth, the sword coming from the mouth means, is He's speaking His Word and He's pouring His Spirit upon us. And we read when the seventh trumpet is, is blasted that the temple of heaven is going to open up. And all these together show, symbolize to me that the spirit of Christ is going to be poured out in the church in a mighty way. A way that has never been poured out before. And that we, the people of God and the church that is there, is going to start operating in, in spiritual gifts. In ways that has never happened before in the history of the world. The people of God making prophecies, performing miracles, raising the dead, having visions. The power of God poured out on people and i'm not really just being fantastic about this you may remember in john jesus told his disciples and he and he made the promise to the church too saying you will do greater things than i have done and i've read that passage and i'm like how in the world are we ever going to do greater things than jesus has done and the only way we can is if the very spirit that operates in Christ begins to operate in us and operate in his church. So we can then do the things that Christ has done and even greater things. Some we can't even imagine. And it is through this power, it is through the spirit working in the church that the Antichrist is overthrown. The rule of the kingdom of the God and church comes to the earth at last. And the bodily return of Christ will come in the last judgment after the final battle to create a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's my expectation. And I think it's pretty cool. I think it'd be great if it played out exactly like I just told you. No deviation at all whatsoever. Now, odds are you have another expectation about the return of Christ. Now, what I can tell you is that there are two things that I am very sure of that will happen with the return of Christ. Two things that I'm absolutely sure of. The first thing I'm sure of is that I am wrong somewhere. And I mean, this is kind of an easy bet to make, right? I've been wrong a lot. And I'm wrong, I don't know where, but somewhere in here I'm wrong. Somewhere, no matter how well I try to, to, to abide strictly by what Scripture says, interpret it as best I can by the Spirit of God, I am wrong somewhere in here. All right, so my, for my wife and kids, if you ever tell me I never admit I'm wrong, it's on video, it's right here, right now. I'm admitting I'm wrong, but it's in the future. I mean, I expect great things out of this, marvelous things, wondrous, but we can't get hung up too much on the precise nature of our expectations because the return of christ is not gonna look exactly like we expect it might look nothing at all like we expect 
And for us to truly be waiting for God, to be waiting as His people, we have to really, well, expect anything. To not bind ourselves to our expectations, because as soon as you bind yourself to your expectations, you essentially put God in a box. And you say, I'm not going to recognize anything that God does unless He acts exactly like I have determined Him right here in this little human expectation box that I've made. We'll get so caught up in it that we won't recognize God when He works in our life. We won't recognize Christ when He arrives. And we fail to recognize God when He acts outside of our expectations. And that's not just for end times here, for when Christ comes, it's for when how God's working in your life right now. He's working outside your expectations, and He always will work outside. Your expectations. And I've talked to some people that have been really afraid that they'll miss the return of Christ. That it's this, this, this nagging fear that maybe it's going to be so subtle we, we're not recognizing it at all. That Christ will come and he'll leave and I'll just be left in the dark. And not recognizing that Christ has been here. And they used the justification by looking at the first advent to say, you know, a lot of people missed him the first time. And they make the mistake of thinking the reason why they missed Christ was because he was too subtle, that they were expecting this big Savior, and they got a little Savior, and it was, it was just too subtle for them to recognize. Many people did miss the first return of Christ, but it wasn't because he was too subtle. They missed the return of Christ because... Of their expectations. I mean, don't get me wrong, Christ was humble, but he was not subtle. He gave no doubt about who he was. Yes, he was born in a manger. Yes, he was humble and meek. Yes, he came into Jerusalem riding, riding on the foal of a donkey, but he was also powerful and bold. This was the same Christ that came to the earth performing miracles, raising dead, walking on water, casting out demons. This is the Christ that came preaching in authority that everyone marveled as soon as they heard him speak. Even his enemies recognized it. And so nobody has ever spoken to us like this. Where did this authority come from? Make no mistake, he was humble when he came, but he was not subtle. For anyone who was watching, there was no surprise and there was no secret about who Christ is. The biggest problem I have with so many of the modern interpretations of Revelation that I read is that they have Christ's return as this subtle, almost you can miss it if you're not careful event. It may have already happened. We could be living in the millennium right now and completely missed the return of Christ in His glory. And all I can say to that is while some elements might be unexpected, I doubt subtlety is one of them. This is the return of Christ with the power and the might of heaven. His return to reign as a king. It may be different than you and I think it is. But there's no mistaking it when it happens. So I told you there's two things I'm sure of. First thing is I'm wrong somewhere in my interpretation of the return of Christ. And the second thing I'm sure of is, is as great as my expectations are, when Christ does return, he's going to blow all those expectations away. 
His return is going to be greater than anything that I or you can expect. It's going to be the exact opposite of the Y2K problem, right? A big hype and it let us down. This one's going to be a big hype and the hype doesn't even come close to living up to the event when it arrives. Not just my expectations, but your expectations. What God is going to do is greater than all of our expectations. And I can say it with certainty because that was true upon his first arrival. It might not have been in line with people's expectations, but it was greater than their expectations. So many were expecting a political leader. They were expecting an earthly king, and they didn't get that. They got something better. They got a savior. They thought Jesus might go to war, to Rome, go to war with Rome. He didn't go to war with Rome. He did something better. He went to war with sin and death, and he conquered them forever. And he freed us from sin and he freed us from death. And personally, I'll take that over any political system any day of the week. Our Lord is returning. There are many ways that he could return. In the clouds, in the spirit, in body, before the millennium, after the millennium, in the middle of the millennium. Take your pick. However, when he does return, it will be unexpected. But if we are faithful, if we stay awake, if we watch, if we wait and hope, then one day we will witness a return that is not only, not only outside of our expectations, but is greater than what we could ever dream of or ever desire. That's what it means to serve a God that, who is greater than us in every single way. That he is greater even than all of our greatest expectations. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.